yeah but so from here we do alsur and then uh, fraser town market drop him uh, rather fraser town no, alsur no, no. indranagar yeah and then i hit old madras road kr puram oh yeah yeah and then outer ring road and how long does it take you um on a good day 45 minutes otherwise 2 hours even if you leave at 7 even if i leave at 7:15 that's crazy yeah. and then yeah. when you head back home in the evening what time do you try to get up if i leave at around 3:45 then i'm normally home by before 5 but any time after that i can um like at least 2 hours minimum More than 2 centuries ago the world began to experience the first industrial revolution when machines and water and steam began to mechanize our way of life think back to the steamboats and spinning jennies soon after came electricity and power that propelled us into an age of mass production where work could happen through the night and then came the big one of our age the it and electronics wave that suddenly made our world much smaller and was driven far more by skills than physical labor and now we're facing a digital revolution that is changing not only the way we work but the way we think interact and express ourselves and each of these revolutions produced in its own image a worker who toiled under the yoke of feudally organized systems or lived with the black lungs of dickensian industrial life was one amongst many in the assembly line or ran the rat race best described by dolly parton's 9 to 5 to today's worker the coffee shop regular who works in the gig economy in india all of these so-called stages coexist even in 2019 so what is work life in india and is it a development problem welcome to in the field I'm Radhika Vishwanathan and I'm Samyukta Varma and for this episode we joined our friend Priyanka on her daily commute from one end of town where she lives to the other where she works So We are stuck in Kyapuram which is the best part of Bangalore. You get <laughs> if you ever want to learn to drive just get through this and you'll be fine. I'm serious this is your best place to learn to drive. You have things coming at you you have like if possible six lanes here you squeeze through whatever you can get. Yeah, it is. It is. It's like a fish market of sorts. You just get through wherever you can. And this is not the worst. When you hit Kerpuram, this is just the beginning to you know, the separation of Kerpuram and uh, Medahalli and stuff like that. So, now when you hit proper Kerpuram, that stretch, that'll get worse. The commute to work is perhaps one of the greatest points of tension in a worker's life. It is at once quotidian, mundane, and aggravating. It falls right between work and life on its increasingly hazy border. 
Michael Hobbs, a journalist, wrote an article some years ago that caught our eye. While on assignment in Dhaka and being subjected to the city's notoriously debilitating traffic jams and complete gridlock, he asked local people, what is the one thing you want improved in your city? The answer was traffic management. Dhaka is not exceptional. This traffic problem is so bad and seemingly getting worse in all of the developing world's big cities, from Accra to Jakarta, and of course, in our otherwise perfect hometown, Bangalore. Major Indian cities are consistently amongst the world's most congested places, and Bangalore's latest city master plan estimates that nearly 12 million citizens will lose 600 million man-hours on the roads every year, thanks to congestion. Traffic is part of our city's identity now, There's an annoyingly funny WhatsApp forward that I once received and it said that Bangalore Tourism was organising a four-day, three-night package tour to four of the city's iconic spots, Silk Board, BTM, Martahalli and KR Puram Tin Factory, the four dreaded gridlocks in the city. Traffic got so bad a few years ago that many of the big IT giants threatened to pull out of Bangalore and move elsewhere to our rival, Hyderabad, because their employees' commutes felt eternal. We make global investment decisions, they shouted. The productivity loss of our employees runs into the millions. Do something or wear out. Hobbes asks in his essay, It might not be as sexy as building schools or curing malaria, but alleviating traffic congestion is one of the defining development challenges of our time. And we agree. So why is India's urban traffic so bad? And is it all due to congestion? My name is Pratay. I'm an Akbar. I'm from Bangladesh, uh, but I came to the U.S. about 10 years ago, and I've been here for a while. Uh, uh, so right now, I'm a PhD student uh, in economics, so I mostly uh, study issues related to cities, in, in particular about how transportation infrastructure affects congestion, but as well as where people live and kind of uh, the structure of cities in general. Pratoy is a transport economist and his work questions the commonly shared perception that as cities grow, they get congested and they see vehicles added in droves every day. To unpack this congestion conundrum, Pratoy and his colleagues looked at all of the largest Indian cities, ones with over 300,000 people, and they studied the extent to which they could measure the monetary equivalent of the loss of time on the road, basically an efficiency angle. And did it vary depending on when people chose to commute? Here's how Prathai explained it to us lay people. It gets a bit economics-y, but bear with us. Imagine a single travel commute at a particular time as a commodity, as something you would buy in a shop. And your choice to purchase it or not would depend on its price tag. So your 9am commute would cost X, and your 3am commute would cost Y. And studying all the X's and the Y's, you'd be able to get a picture of traffic conditions and mobility at different times of the day. Basically, what, what we call mobility is, is basically kind of how fast you can travel. It's, mobility is, is, the, is the price of travel. And then if we could kind of break up mobility into two components, so we can observe congestion. We can observe kind of how this price varies across travel times. Let's call that congested mobility. So the, the part of the mobility that is coming from congestion, and then everything else, it, once we take that aside, any variation in mobility, the rest of the variation in mobility, we, we can call that uncongested mobility. They mapped 22 million trips across 154 large Indian cities and found that cities that are slow, 
are typically slow at all times. So a slow city would also be slow at 3 a.m., and not just at times when it's bound to be congested. And this is the gist of it. Of course, there are, there are some differences. So of course we find kind of large cities congestion does matter more. But uh, I think one of the kind of the highlights of this paper is, is that what we call the uncongested mobility is an even more important uh, part of the story, uh, especially outside of kind of the center of large cities. Uncongested mobility is more associated with the road network itself. And so if you were trying to improve mobility in these slow cities, you would have to invest more in better road infrastructure or traffic enforcement, for example. But as Pratoy points out, better mobility does not necessarily lie with policies to reduce congestion. And this is becoming really important outside of the large cities. A deeper understanding of the interactions between urbanization, mobility and congestion in India and developing countries will help improve investments in transport and city competitiveness. But how do we decide where investments should go? And how do we include more people in this process? There is a lot of money going into um, transport infrastructure in Bangalore. Uh, but it is not going into what helps the average uh, citizen or the, like the, you know, uh, the metro or the, uh, or the large uh, infrastructure projects or, you know, even this elevated corridor. They have again allocated money in the budget for the elevated corridor. Okay. So my name is Shaheen. Um, I've been living in Bangalore for the last 18 years. Um, I'm a member of uh, Bangalore Bus Pranagravedike. So I'm Hansika and I'm one of the more recent members of Bus Vedike. It's going to be about two years uh, this year. Uh, the Vedike is a collective of uh, individuals and organizations who are interested in the question of uh, bus-based public transport. So the BBPV, the Bengaluru Bus Pranikara Vedike, or the Bangalore Bus Passengers Forum, was formed in 2013 and fell out of a citizen-led civic action group for urban issues to work solely on bus-based public transport. Citizen groups like the BBPV are consistently disillusioned by how decisions are regularly taken, ab initio, without taking into consideration existing infrastructure or building from it. And one reason for this is the fragmented institutional ensemble that works on this stuff. If you look at the landscape of urban transport specifically in Bangalore, you have about 10 different agencies working on different aspects of transport, right? And there isn't much coordination between these agencies. A lot of research has gone into how these agencies just work as silos and within, within a BBMP, for example. That's the Bangalore City Corporation. You have a traffic engineering cell that just looks at doing the signages. And you have different divisions for road works, right? And they don't really speak to each other. BMTC is a separate entity. The Bangalore Metropolitan Transport Corporation. You have something called the Directorate of Urban Land Transport of Karnataka. Then you have Bangalore Development Authority. So even if you start looking at, okay, on a given stretch of road, how many agencies are looking at the aspect of mobility, there are multiple and there is really no coordination between that. Is this the same in most other big cities in India? Or, uh, Pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Transport planning and infrastructure is fraught with complexities. Urban transport infrastructure can do a lot of good, like improve land value in neighbourhoods. But it is also mired in local politics. And there's poor insight into the data behind many pricing and fair decisions. And often the outcomes of policy decisions on infrastructure simply shift congestion from one place to the other. The big problem we're not looking closely enough at is who are our city's commuters? What can they afford? And where do they want to travel to? In Bangalore, it's a small set of commuters that use private vehicles. 
8% use four wheelers and 18% use two wheelers. So bus, walking and bicycling, if you account for this together, this is about 50% of the people who are commuting for work in the city. PVPV believes the conversation at the policy levels is always skewed in favour of the private commuter, penalising the majority of commuters who use public transport or non-motorised means. And this is a pretty serious bone of contention for them. If Bangalore City has more than 5.8 million bus commuters riding the BMTC's 6,000 buses, buses are the backbone of the city's transport system. And they will continue to be that important, even if new modes of transport are introduced. And as BBPV points out to us, decadal investments in the public transport bus fleet have been steadily dropping, while the number of cars on the road continues to increase. And yet every time if you have this conversation in the middle class it's about adding more bus, it's like, oh my God, the bus just adds to congestion. It'll just congest the, the roads more. And yet we always blame people and blame citizens for the congestion. But we forget these socio-economic factors, right? Your Half of the city is taking the public service, walking, using zero carbon, low carbon modes. Right? And yet we are sitting on top of so much pollution. Transport investments constitute the largest component of lending of many global development institutions to cities. Money needed for the big elevated roads and the metros, something many, many cities want. But I think I have noticed in general there is a sort of consensus among kind of other urban researchers uh, that generally very large investments in uh, transport infrastructure, things like kind of large subway systems or kind of big highways and things like that are typically not very cost effective. But then again, these are uh, kind of based on, mostly based on studies in the developed world. But how do we evaluate what a city needs? And where do we begin? Rahul Srivastava is a co-founder of Herbs, an experimental urban action research collective based in Mumbai. And they study participatory approaches to planning and design. Their approach is anthropological, based on observing the city, and most importantly, understanding how residents use and create cities. He's been writing about the Mumbai metro and its impact on neighbourhoods. To have the metro is important because it is a public transport. But at the same time, uh, our studies have shown the fact that, yes, they will affect different neighbourhoods differently they do make commuting more expensive uh, they do at the same time uh, uh, you know sort of people like it because they feel it's part you know it's part of an aspiring uh, thing for a neighborhood uh, that we have a metro you know, we're not being simplistic here and saying this is good or bad this is the way things are and we would really like a city to as a whole be more attentive to the needs of local economies Another perhaps overlooked aspect of mobility is that it does impact on social capital very strongly because a person's ability to be mobile can change their life. It opens networks, creates opportunities and can make cities far more inclusive. Think of the early waves of city migration that was enabled by the vast rail network built by the British. Think of how Mumbai's rail network is so integral to its economic vibrancy. And BBPV shapes their narrative as a rights-based one because very few people have the choice to opt out of using public transport. That's how we frame. We frame it as a right to mobility, something that enables your other rights, your right to work, your right to a meaningful social life, your right to education. Generally in India, uh, you know, since we are speaking about mobility and transport, whether it is about transport and mobility or any of uh, a large scale, uh, uh, you know, a, a planning initiative which governments take, uh, there is not, they, we don't really have a history of 
participation. We don't really have a history of getting local people engaged with what's happening. They don't really know how to make those choices, right? And uh, sometimes, of course, uh, citizens' initiatives have come together, like in the case of the metro. Uh, citizens did make their voices heard in terms of the routes, where you should have, where you cannot cut trees. But on the other hand, by and large, uh, not only with mobility and transport, but for many uh, aspects of governance, where do we actually see active, you know, involvement, particularly in the cities? You know, in villages, yes, you you do see a greater level of, uh, you know, give and take and people having discussions and debates, etc. But with cities, it's all, always seen more as a technocratic uh, kind of role, you know, and people don't really uh, have much say in those matters. When we ran the, a lot of the fair campaigns, also what we saw was, you know, people are very, um, uh, people don't have a hope that things will change. That's what we sensed when we, they said, what you're saying is all right, but you know, there is no point. You know, they're not going to listen to you. This is the, this is, this was the common refrain that we heard from the commuters themselves. They are so um, skeptical about any possibility of change happening that they just sort of you know um, accept the fair hike and and don't um, sort of you know uh, it doesn't become a voting issue back on our trip as one of the city's 8% car commuters we'd been driving for over half an hour and we had moved a handful of kilometers i'm kind of motion sick and i kind of like the independence of my car so i prefer driving for some strange reason like i love driving and for some strange reason in traffic. <laughs> so the guys at work keep telling me I don't like driving, I like traffic. That's what I like apparently. Why do we take commuting for granted? Prathoi tells us that transport economics is still an emerging area of study. And at home, everyone we speak to speaks with a sense of solemn resignation, whether they live in Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore, or pretty much any big city. Galvanizing people around the issue of transport in general is such a difficult task, despite the fact that it is a huge part of our lives. One of the glaring gaps that emerged while researching this episode was the dearth of data. Whether it's data on the communities, or investments infrastructure, or mapping. And getting the right data is critical to transport economics. Urban economics in general too. A lot of this data is expensive, and often cities don't have the research ability to conduct extensive surveys. But we do live in an age of apps, and even Google Maps has of late been quite useful to economists looking for large data sets. Everyone in Bangor is like, kind of attuned to this being such a part of their life. Um, I think it's easier if you kind of get used to the fact that there's going to be traffic and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so. One, you either learn to deal with it or find better ways. Um, the local transport is not that great. If you really like taking a bus and walking, it's fine. But there are going to be challenges. If you're okay with that, then that becomes a part of your life. Um, I've been driving this for nine years. So for me, this has become my life. We're in Mumbai, in Sakinaka, at the bottom of a hill full of warehouses, recycling and small industrial units nestled chock-a-block between a real warren of lanes. Look up and you'll feel as if the hill will collapse on you, which it has at times during the monsoon. On our way in, our cab had to backtrack nearly a full kilometre because the map indicated a broad road, but in reality it was a winding maze full of industrial activity 
trucks loading and unloading goods, small units spilling out onto the street, and actually our cab was the disruptor, creating the roadblock and stopping the work. We walked around the neighborhood with Kiran, who works with Ajivika Bureau, a fantastic NGO that works on labor and migration. Ajivika Bureau runs a small outreach center at the heart of El Ward for the migrant workers of Sakinaka, most of whom come from Uttar Pradesh. In the early days of their work in Rajasthan, Ajivika Bureau noticed that the local agricultural work was giving way to labor migration, and it struck them that people were migrating simply as a livelihood strategy. So the data that came in front of us, he struck us that there are some areas where labor and migration अब लोगों की लाइवलीहुड का कोई नेचुरल कैलेमिटीज या किसी और तरह की सोशल डिस्ट्रेस से लोग नहीं जा रहे हैं ये अब लोगों की लाइवलीहुड की एक तरह से स्ट्रेटजी बन गई है एंड एज कृष्णावतार शर्मा आजीविका को फाउंडर टोल्ड अस द गोल वाज टू मेक दिस माइग्रेशन अ प्रोडक्टिव पॉजिटिव एक्सपीरियंस फॉर माइग्रेंट्स रादर देन द प्रॉब्लम दैट वी नो दैट इट इज तो कैसे इस माइग्रेशन को एक खास तौर से पुअर विलेजर्स के लिए पुअर फैमिलीज के लिए कैसे ज़्यादा पॉजिटिव अपॉर्चुनिटी बनाई जाए जिस तरह की कंडीशंस वो फेस करते हैं जिस तरह की प्रॉब्लम्स वो अर्बन एरियाज में जाकर फेस करते हैं जिससे कि वो बहुत कुछ माइग्रेशन से भी उनको रिटर्न नहीं मिल रहा है मेकिंग लेबर एंड माइग्रेशन अ पॉजिटिव अपॉर्चुनिटी इज क्रिटिकल वर्क बिकॉज इन इंडिया नियरली नाइन्टी वर्कर्स आर अनऑर्गेनाइज एंड वर्क इन इनफॉर्मल सेक्टर Ajivika tells us that of these around 35 to 40% are migrants and many of them join the workforce very young and work in difficult conditions. In Sakinaka most of the labor force work in small industrial units building or repairing printers, scanners, fridges and other equipment and recycling. There's an extensive recycling sub industry taking apart everything from plastic to keyboards, computers and even solid waste. The value of the migrant worker in industrial development and even in urban development is almost always unseen and invisible. As you will see, that the youth in villages are coming from 13-14 years old. And our experiences say that in these markets, the hard-worked workers, the conditions in which they live, 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 कर खाते हैं उनका रिटायरमेंट भी जल्दी हो जाता है तो 14 टू 15 इयर्स में लोग एंटर करते हैं मार्केट में और हमारा जो पीक समय होता है अर्निंग का उस समय वो रिटर्न हो जाते हैं 35 से 40 क्योंकि वो जिस तरह की लाइफ उनकी इन शहरों में होती है तो तो द हार्ट सिप टेक्स द टोल्स है ना आप यू नो देर वर्क फॉर्स ईयर्स बिगिन अर्ली एट फोर्टीन और फिफ्टीन एंड देन दे रिटर्न होम ड्यूरिंग वट शुड बी दैर पीक अर्निंग ईयर्स anywhere between 35 and 40 because the kind of hard work they do and the conditions they live in their poor nutrition all force them to retire early the hard ship takes the tolls you know migrant workers like the ones in sakinaka often lead split lives kyunki dheere dheere migrant workers jab shaharon mein aakar kaam karta hai dheere dheere ye bhi samajh mein aane lag gaya unko ki urban jo areas hain वो उनका डेस्टिनेशन नहीं है इट्स नॉट ए परमानेंट डेस्टिनेशन वर्क इन द सिटी एंड लिव लाइफ बैक इन द विलेज बिकॉज लिविंग हियर ब्रिंगिंग वंस फैमिली एंड अर्निंग एट द सेम टाइम इज सो हार्ड दैट व्हाट वी एंड अप सीइंग इज सीजनल माइग्रेशन दे सी दैट टाइम इन द सिटी एज ट्रांजिटरी क्योंकि यहां रहना 
यहाँ फिर अपनी फैमिली को रखना और कमाना उतना मुश्किल है तो ये एक सीजनल माइग्रेशन है जिनकी इकोनॉमिक लाइफ शहरों में है और सोशल लाइफ उनके अपने विलेजेस में रीतिका रेवती सुब्रमण्यन इज अ रिसर्चर विद आजीविका यू नो इफ यू आज दैन दैट यू वांट टू बी इन बॉम्बे और यू नो व्हाई डू यू वॉच भोजपुरी फिल्म्स हियर इट्स द फैक्ट दैट दैट यू नो दे डोंट वांट टू मेक इट बिग हियर यू नो इट्स इट्स ऑलवेज इट्स अ इट्स अ ट्रांजिट पॉइंट आई मीन यू नो अ लॉट ऑफ देम से दैट यू वांट टू अर्न हियर एंड वी नो इट्स अ जॉब एंड दैट्स द रीजन वी आर ओके लिविंग इन ऑन साइट वर्क आर यू नो लाइक वर्क ओवर टाइम वर्क फॉर 16 आवर्स अ डे इफ नेसेसरी बट देन वी वांट टू गो बैक होम एंड दैट्स वेयर एवरीथिंग यू नो रेस्ट फॉर अस लाइक वी वांट टू स्टार्ट अ शॉप देयर और यू वांट टू स्टार्ट अ बिजनेस देयर Much of Ajivika Bureau's work is in trying to establish some system of employee welfare in conditions where worker-employee relations are most fragile and easily broken. Working with people in precarious employment like this is about finding ways to assure protection from shocks, and this could be anything from big macroeconomic shifts to medical bills from a sudden illness. And migrant workers are even more vulnerable. Ajivika works at this cross-section. They assist with establishing identities for migrant labor. to finding ways to better bargaining power through things like legal education an important piece of this is to formalize the laborers daily life by giving them ways to account for their daily work and the contractual obligations of the employer they delicately mediate wage dispute resolution in ways that protect the laborer but don't cause conflict welfare is perhaps the first step to well-being it's what helps establish the dignity of labor and it creates the conditions for a good working environment Most often the concept of work life is defined by these things but the culture of the workplace the culture of the industry and the culture we live in really matter and it's a combination of all these cultures that drive aspiration in the worker because aspiration is a critical capacity that gives us the pathways to identify and achieve our goals it's an idea that Arjun Apadurai professor at New York University is well known for When people are held back by social structures without agency or opportunity or when they function in a survival mode only they lack the capacity to aspire ये डिपेंड अपॉन है कि जिस किस सोर्स एरिया से लोग आ रहे हैं लेकिन अगर अब बी से कि ट्राइबल एरिया से जो लोग आ रहे हैं उड़ीसा से जो लोग आए हैं उनमें किसी तरह से कोई एस्पिरेशंस दिखती नहीं है कि वो यहां शहरों में आकर भी अपने काम को कैसे बढ़ाएं अपनी स्किल्स को कैसे बढ़ाएं क्या है ना अपनी लाइफ में कुछ और करने की कोशिश करें क्योंकि एक तो जिस तरह की आप डिस्ट्रेस से आप वहाँ निकलते हैं जिस तरह की कंडीशंस में आप काम करते हैं व्यक्ति की कहते हैं ना कि इच्छाएं और आत्माएं वैसे ही मर जाती हैं क्योंकि आपके पास समय ही नहीं है ट्वेल्व आवर्स आप काम करते हैं है, इतना हार्ड काम करते हैं उसके बाद में आप क्या ड्रीम देखेंगे कि अब आप और क्या करना चाहते हैं करने काम बचा रहे ये ज़रूर है जब भी हम इस तरह के माइग्रेंट वर्कर्स से काम कर मतलब बात करते हैं तो दो तीन चीज़ें वो जरूर कहते हैं एक तो ये कहते हैं कि साहब वर्किंग आवर्स हमारे कम करवा दिए कि ये जो हमारा क्योंकि उससे जुड़ी हुई है वेल बींग जो है ना वो उससे जुड़ी हुई है एक तो वर्किंग आवर्स कम हो और जितना उनको अपनी मेहनत का वेजेज मिलना चाहिए उनको मेहनताना मिलना चाहिए उतना वो मेहनताना वो मेहनताना नहीं तो ये दोनों चीज़ें बड़ी क्रिटिकल हैं और लास्टली जॉब जैसे तैसे करके उनको यहाँ आ गए हैं तो उनको अपनी जॉब बचाए रहना है कमाए कमाते रहना है क्योंकि तो उनको अपने आप की सर्वाइवल के साथ साथ फैमिली की सर्वाइवल की टू सामाप शर्मा जी 
When people from distressed backgrounds are forced to migrate and work in hard conditions, their desire and soul is destroyed. And after that, what dreams can they have? Their dreams may stretch as far as wanting a fair wage or reduced working hours because their well-being is linked to these two. And maybe all they can aspire to is keeping their job because their survival depends on it. I mean, I think specifically, you know, speaking about masculinity, I think we'd also like to touch upon uh, urban loneliness itself, you know, I mean, living in these big cities and living a very alienated sort of, uh, you know, life on a daily basis. I think one interesting aspect that we found out in Mumbai, uh, you know, in the course of our work was also the aspiration associated with phone, with mobile phones as well as films as such, you know. I mean, and uh, we, we did like a very random survey over here and we identified that approximately 7 out of 10 migrant workers here own smartphones and that is more important than the way you look, you know, and especially when you go back home, it's also a status symbol and also a fact that you've arrived in Mumbai, you know. On a day-to-day basis, there are only a few forms of reprieve for the migrants of Sakinaka. This split life is lonely and sometimes hard to reconcile, especially in the big city, with everything it promises. Working long hours with little spare money, there are few places people can go to unwind. Their smartphone becomes their only source of any entertainment and relief. And, uh, you know, one industry which has been thriving extensively because of in these labour industries now, with smartphones becoming more and more accessible, are uh, these, you know, mobile phone industries. And, you know, they work in this whole download sort of system. And uh, I think that is something wherein, you know, there's also the sense of escape living within your, uh, you know, factories itself. Work is changing. We know that, but its implications on work and life now can't be separated. Last year, four of the big multilateral development banks published a report on the future of work. And more recently, the World Bank's 2019 World Development Report focused on the same subject, the changing nature of work. All talk about the future of automation and innovation, skills and education, the expansion of the digital economy, platforms and the gig economy, and changing employer-employee relationships, and why we need to transition to a just work framework. But there's a big issue that surrounds the problems being raised by changing work, and that is inequality. As technology widens the gap between the old skills and the new skills, the ILO talks about the problem of a flawed social contract. Their response to the World Bank's World Development Report stated that small proposals to introduce fairness to work practices will not lead to the big structural changes that are still necessary to reduce inequality and poverty and share growth more equitably. We are in an age where the gaps between the rich and the poor are shocking. To fix these things, we need to reimagine what work is. And there isn't a better time to do that than right now. Big cities can be some of the loneliest places. Ryan Bennett is the CEO of WeWork India, the real estate juggernaut that is changing the elite workspace. And in its early years, not so long ago, WeWork began by turning underutilized spaces into office space. And they quickly realized that while their largely self-employed entrepreneurial cohort needed the space, they also came for the sense of community. 
And, and that's really the, the progression that we've seen and something that we really try to focus on because people find immense value in that. You know, if you look at that over the past, you know, 10, 20 years, I think that's drastically changed. You know, if you even go back to the assembly line days to, you know, the 1950s and 60s and going into the 80s, everyone was focused on getting this job that they would have for life. And it really didn't matter if you liked that job. It gave you a retirement package and it gave you benefits and work was looked at as just something that you had to get through to get through the day. Increasingly, innovation and creativity are becoming the fulcrum of work. And as they place different and new demands on work itself, we're going to be forced to figure out how to nurture these twin aspects inside of every worker. As technology makes some jobs redundant, and we can't yet imagine what others will come to the fore, what we do know right now is that we're in an entrepreneurial, innovation-driven mode. The digital revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, is transforming the nature of work and life. In fact, work now is life. And work has to be more fulfilling because it is all-encompassing. And this means that the individual needs a lot more from work to sustain themselves. With this onus on the individual to find and create meaning in work, what Ryan calls finding your life's work, it's becoming more important to protect the thing inside that keeps people dreaming and aspiring. There's no dearth of interest in this in our country, and you only have to look at the management and business section of any bookstore to see that. You know, and there's an, there's an amazing stat that says like about 85% of millennials would take a pay cut to work on something that they're more passionate about. And that's a really powerful statement if you think about it. And what you really see within these walls are people who, you know, just want to feel very connected to what they do. Um, because whatever you do, your job doesn't, unfortunately or fortunately, your job doesn't stop at six o'clock, right? You're on your phone at seven or eight or nine. And if, you're, if your life and your job are gonna be that integrated together, you better be doing something you're passionate about because otherwise it's not gonna work. So I think if you factor in all those different pieces together, you've seen a dramatic shift towards people really wanting to focus on doing what they love more so than maybe what their parents want them to do or what you know the previous generations have done. But there is a method in the madness. We are making conscious choices of where to work, where to live, and all of these individual choices are never random. But they're still very understudied because of data challenges and also because these things are not very well understood, even theoretically. WeWork's approach is to understand what makes its members happy and productive by using a bunch of different types of metrics. So real estate, for example, right, like really using a lot of just heat mapping and, and studying the markets to understand, you know, where is traffic best, where is it worst, where are all the MNCs and getting a building that would work for them, where are the startup environments and, and really just doing, I would say, a high level just strategy on where our buildings need to be on the, on the real estate side. They're constantly trying to measure the comfort level and use of their spaces and they go as far as to using sensors within their offices to see which rooms and configurations work better. And the other big thing WeWork is known for are their events, a carefully curated roster of talks, workshops and experiences for their members. In the short term, work life is greatly enhanced in a conducive, happy environment. It's why Google built amazing campuses in the heyday of the IT boom that ensured that workers never actually had to leave for any reason at all. Right, so, you know, a lot of people don't need to be in this nine to five place anymore. So whether it's working you know, super early in the morning or working late at night, being able to come into an environment that feels so comfortable and really feels like 
a second home. So they, they don't need to leave and they don't feel like they're missing their apartment because they're just as comfortable sitting here getting work done or even spending leisure time here. You know, we have, if you come here on a Thursday night, we have a table tennis that will be packed until midnight, right? And some of it's because they love the, they love the community, but some of it's also probably because they're waiting for the traffic to die down, right? So really trying to give a full experience for our members that makes them feel like they never need to leave. A shift in thinking in human resource well-being is underway in developed countries. From a simple health and safety framework to a more comprehensive one that includes mental and physical well-being, diet, exercise and safety. Some of this has even come from the government, where, for example, in the UK, they expanded the portfolio of the Minister for Sport and Civil Society to include loneliness. And, you know, the, the one thing that we really think about all day long is, you know, better together. Right. And and especially in, in large cities. So, um, you know, we're starting to partner with organizations um, like Thrive, which is run by Ariana Huffington, which just focuses on, you know, healthy living and sleep and taking care of each, uh, you know, each other and oneself. So really starting to bring in partners that can help us to fight not only loneliness, but like burnout, because that's a that's a big challenge as well. You know, a lot of people really are working these 16, 18 hours a day, and they start to struggle with that. How do we get to a point where we can experience the best possible version of this shift, where the worker has more power in deciding how to distribute time between work and life? And this becomes what flexibility means, rather than being part of a system where work happens all the time. Adam Grant, psychologist and professor at Wharton, often talks about how a work-life balance is unrealistic. There will be times in your life when you will work more and be less at home. And there will be other times when you'll spend more time on other pursuits or with family and less time at work. He speaks instead of finding a work-life rhythm where all aspects of our lives, work, home, friends, wax and wane over time. I really wish my work was that way. No, it isn't. I mean, I'm, see, it's like work life is kind of consumed. I don't have a life apart from work. I mean, there's a time when I say, yeah, I'm going on a holiday after my release. I mean, I time my holidays after something that I shouldn't be doing it. It's not a fair thing to do, right? Uh, you should have a life. I mean, that's the only way you're going to survive. But. I think that's how we've all become. We've tuned our, our lives so much around work that we don't do anything else apart from that. And I go back, I take calls at around 9.30, 10, because you have different people in different time zones. So yeah, it kind of sucks. In the end, this is work life. This promise of transformatory workplaces with friends, networks, communities, and stimulations at conveniently located places that reduce your commute and enhance your comfort is still in the realm of the very few. The Ajivika workers and the we workers are two ends of the spectrum, and for all in the middle, the full range of issues still persist, from needing basic welfare to well-being. The thing with India is that we have a huge population, the demographic numbers to allow a huge percentage of our workers to be grist for the mill, and that is harsh, but it is also the harsh reality of how our economy functions. And loneliness, mental burnout and physical stress are serious issues. And if you want to think of it this way, they will have economic consequences. Look around you or think to your own life. How many of you listeners have experienced burnout, have tried to escape the hamster wheel? 
in some small or big way. If economic progress is going to be led by ingenuity and by creativity, then we have to preserve our work life before it snuffs out the very source of this intangible power and douses our capacity to aspire. If there's any creativity emerging, it has come in spite of all of this. Cities are centres of production, that we know. But when will they become centres of creativity? The means to get there are as important as the outcome. And this brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Apurva Varma, Amrita Sharma, Hansika Singh, Kiran, Krishnavtar Sharma, Nishipal Nitkar, Priyanka Nair, Pratoy Aman Akbar, Rahul Srivastava, Ritika Revati Subramanian, Ryan Bennett, Sanjay Patel, Shaheen Shasa, and everyone else at the RGVK Bureau. In the field is a Vaka production. This episode is hosted and produced by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. Our sound producer is Santosh Nataraja, and our theme song is by Hollis Coates. Show and art design by Bhushan Raj. This episode was mixed and recorded at Third Eye Studios. Check out our show notes, transcripts, and more information on inthefieldindia.org or reach out to us on social media. We're at In the Field India. In the Field is supported by Rohini Nalekini Philanthropies. <laughs>